Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, we read, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Remember the theme of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The theme is true righteousness. True righteousness is that standard of behavior that God finds acceptable. It is the standard of behavior that's found in the heart of Jesus, in the words of Jesus, in the life of, min- of Jesus, and in the ministry of Jesus. And since true righteousness is pictured in Jesus, it is practiced in the citizens in Christ's kingdom. Remember, righteousness is first inward, but so is sin. The citizen in Christ's kingdom isn't simply interested in keeping the rules. The citizen in Christ's kingdom is interested in keeping his heart, her heart, in the power of purity. And you'll remember, remember, remember earlier in verse 8 that the pure in heart will see God. And for those of you who were here and, and when we covered that particular portion of scripture, remember I reminded you that the reason why the pure in heart see God is because they can't see anything else. Remember, righteousness is first inward and then outward. The Lord Jesus began by looking at anger in verses 21 through 26. And now his attention turns to the subject of lust in verses 27 through 32. Later, Jesus will speak about deception in verses 33 through 37. Retaliation in verses 38 through 48. But now... The focus is going to be on lust and adultery and divorce. The law said, do not commit adultery. And just like the seeds of murder is anger in the heart, Jesus is going to remind us that the seeds of adultery is lust in the heart. So what do anger and lust have in common? Well, both are powerful motivators. Murder traces its roots to anger. Moral seduction traces its roots to wandering eyes. So what's Jesus' solution to murder? You have to deal with the problem of anger in your heart. What is Jesus' solution to adultery? You have to deal with the problem of lust in the heart. And lust and anger have this in common. They'll both consume your lives. They'll both ruin your life. 
They'll both seek to control your life. Lust and anger degrade and devalue people by seeing them as objects for consumption or personal satisfaction rather than human beings who are made in the image and the likeness of God. You'll remember that thou shalt not kill is the sixth commandment. And now thou shalt not commit adultery is the seventh commandment. And the reason why God speaks to these issues is because he understands that a stable family provides the basis and the guarantee for an organized society, for a civil life. There's a reason, there's a reason why God prohibits adultery. In God's kingdom, activities that weaken the family and activities that pervert the family and distort and destroy the family is forbidden. And marriage is sacred in God's eyes. It is God who ordained marriage. It is God who invented marriage. No matter what this culture says, no matter what this society says, look at me, look at me, look at me. God invented marriage. It is his institution. When God invented marriage, he was the first priest. He was the first witness. He was the first guest. Marriage isn't simply a social or a cultural construct invented by human beings and adopted by God. And so you can imagine, if you want to just live in a regular world where marriage isn't at risk, can you imagine God's world and the kingdom of God and what relationship and fellowship looks like in that kingdom? It was the late Pauline Phillips. Some of you might know her under a different name. She wrote under the pen name Abigail Van Buren. In her famous column, she posted this, Dear Abby, I'm in love, and I'm having an affair with two different women. I can't marry them both. Please tell me what to do, but don't give me any of that morality stuff. (laughs) Abby replied, dear sir, the only difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. C.S. Lewis wrote that chastity is the most unpopular of all the Christian virtues. And so it is. And we live in a sexualized society where even Christians, even Christians are beginning to believe that sexual freedom trumps all other freedoms. But what does Jesus have to say? Let's look. At the act of adultery, look in verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Moses received this law about 1400 BC. Now you can imagine if you're receiving the law in 1400 BC, do you think that adultery was a problem in 1400 BC? 1300 BC, 1000 BC. Moses understood that this was a problem. And so Jesus tells his audience, anger without cause is murder. 
Now he says that longing for sexual relations with someone other than your husband or wife is the same as adultery. And when you do either, you despise God's law. You despise God's name. You despise God's will. If I were to go around the room and I were to ask you a question, please very quickly define adultery for me. Each and every one of you might come up with a similar definition. It might be a little bit different. But whatever definition you come up with, that word is rooted and grounded in a word that means to break up the marriage. Adultery means marriage breaker. It has to do with breaking vows. We Christians must keep our promises and make a commitment to the purity of heart and the sanctity of marriage and the reality of what it means to honor our marriage. Marriage is a covenant for life and remaining pure in both thought and deed is the standard that God expects. So what does the church teach about the meaning And the obligation of true Christian marriage. And see, this is why. This is part of the reason why. When a couple come up to me and they say, hey, guess what? We're getting married. And I say, hallelujah, praise the the Lord, congratulations. Well, what do we need to do to get married? And I encourage them. I say, you need to go through a time of marriage preparation. And there's a reason why we want to to go through this time of marriage preparation. We want you, we so want you to understand the meanings and obligations of true Christian marriage because nothing, nothing, nothing is more healthy and beautiful than a right relationship with God and then a relationship with each other. And there's nothing more terrifying. There's nothing more problematic. There's nothing more, more difficult than, than being unhappily married. We see a number of Old Testament characters who experienced ongoing battles with lust. You don't have to go very far in the Bible and you read about the judge, Samson. You read about the king, David. You read about the king's son, Absalom. In the New Testament characters, it would include King Herod Antipas, who allows lust to carry him to the extreme measure of murdering John the Baptist. Even some of the ancient philosophers opposed lust on moral grounds because they thought that virtue rather than lust should dominate one's thinking and feeling and action. Others, most notably the Greek culture, thought that lust was healthy and human. In the ancient world of Greek mythology, Ares was the god of war and violence. Aphrodite was his lover. Aphrodite was the goddess of sexual expression. She was the goddess of lust. But Jesus isn't simply content to argue mythology or morality or ethics. He is going to go right to the center of the controversy and deal with the problem of the purity of heart. And in our culture... Many of us still worship at the altar of violence and lust. 
And we do so sometimes vicariously through the media or through the internet or through television or through videos or through theaters. In the ancient world, they had pagan temples and pornography on demand. We don't have to go back 2,000 years. We have cable. And it provides all of the opportunities that were allowed in an ancient world. And so Jesus goes from the act of adultery to the attitude of adultery. Look at verse 28. It says, but I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Lord Jesus dismisses the idea that adultery is limited to the physical act of infidelity. He goes further. He reveals the truth that inner desire for immoral experiences of sin is a violation of the marriage covenant. And the goal of the commandment wasn't simply to prohibit sexual immorality, but to affirm affirm sexual purity and to affirm the sanctity of the relationship to affirm trust and respect and fellowship and relationship so when he says but i say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust the greek word translated lust is one of those compound greek words that's very very interesting Some of you know that Greek sometimes has a prefix, which is something that goes before the word, and then the root word, and a suffix. And in this particular instance, it's a word that means passion, or flame, or desire. It's thumeo, and epi is the prefix. Epi, thumeo, means a strong desire. It means a a passionate desire. By the way, the Bible uses the same word to describe the strong desire for either something good or even something bad. In Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus predicted that there would come a time when the disciples will desire, it says, will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. In that particular instance, Jesus says, guess what? There's going to come a day after we're done here, after I'm done speaking with you, after the miracles are done, after I take my journey to Jerusalem, after I'm killed on a cross, after I rise from the dead, after I ascend into heaven, some of you are going to strongly desire just one of those days with me. Hey, do you remember when we walked with Jesus? Do you remember when we were on the Sea of Galilee? Do you remember when we had fish tacos in Capernaum? Do you remember... Eyes being opened and and lepers being cleansed and, and you're longing for those good old days. But it can also be used to describe a craving for something that is unhealthy and evil and wicked. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and 7, in warning the Corinthians against idolatry and evil things. He says, we should not lust after evil things. 
as they also lusted. And do not, do not become idolaters as were some of them. Sin is the power that transforms something healthy or something neutral into something unhealthy or harmful. Sin is the power which turns desire into lust and then it turns upon itself into an unhealthy expression of self-indulgent wickedness. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. Healthy people hunger and thirst. Nothing wrong with that. Hunger and thirst is not unhealthy. It's the abuse that becomes unhealthy. Hunger is a natural desire. Gluttony is a sinful desire. It's not wrong to eat, but you can eat in such a way that you dishonor God. Go to the all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet and you'll see exactly what I mean. It's not wrong to drink, but you can drink in such a way that you dishonor God. C.S. Lewis said, He that looketh on a plate of ham and eggs to lust after it hath already committed breakfast in his heart. I think that's right. The problem of lust begins with the lingering look. And that's what Jesus says. Whoever looks at a woman. And by the way, the word translated look, blepo. It means to look, but it means to keep on looking. It's more than just that glance. It isn't the look in the magazine or the look in the billboard or the look in the real world in which we live. We live in a world where you cannot necessarily avert your eyes quick enough to get away from the image. It isn't the first look that gets you into trouble. It's the second look. It's the lingering look. It's the longing look. Spiros Zodiades, in his exegetical commentary on Matthew, writes, quote, The most common stimulator of this sin is the eyes, and from the gaze of the eyes comes the passion of the heart, unquote. What the eyes see, the heart wants. And this becomes an important point. What the eye sees, the heart wants. And so the act of adultery begins in the mind. The inward thought becomes consent in the mind. And so think about what's happening here. Jesus condemns coveting people sexually. And again, for the person who says, what is the harm in looking? It depends on who you ask. Let's ask King David. David, what's the harm in looking? Some of you know his story. When kings were supposed to be at war, he finds himself on a rooftop. And as he's gazing out over the city of Jerusalem, he sees a young lady and she's taking a bath. And it wasn't the first look that got him into trouble. It was the second one. It was the longing one. It was the lingering one. 
Now imagine if you could talk to David and you could whisper in his ear, keep looking, David, keep looking, David, keep looking, David. And the more he looked, the more he wanted, and the more he wanted, he had to have. But imagine if someone else would have whispered in his ear and said, guess what, David, 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 guess what's going to happen? Guess, guess, I want to begin, I want you to begin to think about all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the heartache that you're about to, 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 to create. I want you to think about a dead man and a dead child. You don't understand where this is going. You don't understand what is happening. Again, someone said that lust is the craving for salt when you're dying of thirst and it burns and it begins to enter into you. And we now know, we now know that the lingering look changes our brain chemistry. Maybe you grew up in a world where you heard, you are what you eat. And guess what? You are, to a certain extent, what you eat. But guess what else you are? You are what you think about most of the time. The lingering look quite literally changes your brain chemistry and your neural pathways. We now know that prolonged exposure to pornographic images rewires your brain. It rewires your chemistry. By the way, will all people who are exposed to explicit sexual images act out? No. Will some? Yes. And I want you to remember the context. I want you to remember the, the context of the entire sermon that Jesus is preaching. Remember the context. Jesus is speaking about righteousness in a future kingdom. And as he's speaking about this righteousness in this future kingdom, he's speaking about a world in which you are invited to live. He's speaking of a world where marriage is sacred and couples get along and they love each other and they trust each other and they respect each other. He says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. What the eye sees, the heart desires. If your right eye causes you to sin. So what's the simple solution to the persistent problem of lust? Jesus begins. Stop looking. The way to avoid adultery is to shut your eyes to the images that stimulate and embolden the impure thoughts. Stop looking. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So what advice would you give to the person? Who's in bondage to lust. Think about it. Just let's pause for a moment. Advice is what we ask for when we already know the answer, but we wish we didn't. And so when the person says, 
break it off. Walk away. Well, I'll do it tomorrow. No, you need to do it today. Break up today. Call it off today. Walk away today. Give the key to the apartment back. Do it now. Make a radical change. Walk away. What Jesus is doing is he's basically saying severe sin requires severe self-judgment. Does Jesus actually advocate the removing of one's eye or the removing of one's limb in the battle against lust and sin? Let's ask the question quickly. If you pluck out your right eye and if you cut off your right hand, is that going to make lust go away? No. You still have a left eye and you still have a left hand. You still have a brain. You still have a mind. Jesus is exaggerating a point in order to make a point. It's called hyperbole. So what do we do with this figure of speech? Jesus does expect a rigorous resistance to temptation and sin. Some have tragically and literally interpreted this text to mean exactly that. But that's not what it means. Jesus knows that sin is in the mind and in the will and in the heart. It is the heart and the mind that says to you, keep looking. It is the heart and the mind that says to you, keep touching. It's the heart and the mind that motivates you. Again, Zodiades says, quote, the body is simply the instrument that the mind uses to carry out its sinful choices. Many a blind person has had adulterous thoughts, unquote. Making your vision go away doesn't make your passion go away. And Jesus repeats the comment twice. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I have a different question for you. Do you think that's hyperbole as well? Is hell hyperbole? Is he exaggerating a point in order to make a point? I'm going to suggest to you, I'm going to suggest to you what happens when the only alternatives that you have are to abandon your sin, to abandon the self-destructive behavior, to abandon the sin, or to go to hell. Imagine you go to a doctor, and the doctor says, I have really bad news for you. You have cancer and it's in your eye. But it's treatable. If we remove your eye, guess what? The cancer isn't going to invade your brain and take your life. And you say, I like my eye and I want to keep my eye. And it's healthy. It's okay for you to like your eye. And it's okay for you to want to keep your eye. But if you have to choose between your eye and your life, which one will you choose? Pastor Skip Heitzig, my very close friend and lifelong friend, wrote a little booklet. It's entitled Lust, How to Conquer It. He calls Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, damage control. And I like it. Listen to what he says. Quote, 
get rid of something before it does greater damage later. Look at the comparison between the greater damage and the lesser damage. If your right eye causes you to sin, sin being the greater damage, because it could result in hell, compared with the lesser damage of plucking out your own eye, it sounds extreme, but the analogy is a good one. Lust is as consequential as cancer that must be cut out before it causes greater damage, damage that can lead to death, unquote. So, can unchecked lust hurt you? What do you suppose the answer is? That's right. There is spiritual damage. There is physical damage. There is emotional damage. There is relational damage. And if you begin with spiritual damage, you understand that lust breaks fellowship with God. Just like murder. Murder breaks fellowship with God. Anger in the heart breaks fellowship with God. Lust breaks fellowship with God. And with the loss of fellowship with God comes a loss of peace. And guess what? If you continue in a lifestyle without repentance, it provides the necessary proof that you're not a child of God. For the person who says... I don't want to give up this sin and I don't want to give up this relationship and I don't want to give up this lust and I don't care if it ruins my family and I don't care if it destroys my children's life and I don't care the consequences that it has on the appearance in the church and I don't care and I don't care and I don't care about any of that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is right. But I'd like to add a thought and link it to an earlier thought twice repeated by Jesus about the body being cast whole into hell. Remember in the Jewish culture and under the law of Moses when a person was found guilty of adultery, technically the offender could be stoned. But invariably in that culture and that society... It rarely, if ever, happened. Do you realize that divorce became a merciful alternative to killing your spouse? I know what some of you are thinking. I believe marriage is for for life, and that's why I'm going to kill her. I understand you believe that marriage is for life. And what about our world? What about this world? Is sexual sin a problem? What do you think the answer is? 
In a survey conducted by Psychology Today, one-third of married men and women who were questioned about marital fidelity admitted to at least one extramarital affair. And those in their 40s, half of the husbands and wives admitted to sexual contact with someone other than their spouse. On another subject, 44% of the women and 29% of the men said that they disapproved of having sex with someone that they didn't really love. And when I read that, I thought, they're using love as an excuse to rebel against God and dishonor God and disobey God. Love becomes to them the justification for disobeying God? And the church hasn't escaped the devastation of personal impurity and lust. Forbidden sexual activities haunt the leadership of churches across the country. Leadership Magazine, the editor of which I had on my radio program not too long ago, commissioned a poll of a thousand pastors, 12% admitted to adultery, While in the ministry, that's one in eight pastors, 23% admitted to some kind of inappropriate sexual contact. Christianity Today then surveyed a thousand of its subscribers who weren't pastors and found the figure nearly double with 23% of Christians admitting to extramarital intercourse, 45% admitting to some kind of inappropriate sexual contact, one in four Christian men were unfaithful. Nearly one half admitted to some kind of inappropriate behavior. These are shocking statistics when you consider that the average reader of Christianity today is college educated, a church leader, a deacon, an elder, a worship leader, a Sunday school teacher. And if these are the statistics for the church leaders... What do you think is going on in the congregations? And this leads to an inescapable conclusion. There's a gigantic problem. And so the way to deal with that problem is to ask and answer a different question. Once again, Jesus invites the citizen of the kingdom of heaven to look at the whole thing differently. To ask and answer the question, what will it take for me to experience a radical purity? In the world in which we live, lust can cripple us mentally, emotionally, physically. You could list The sexually transmitted diseases, chlamydia, syphilis, gonorrhea, HIV, the list goes on and on. King Solomon warned his son against immorality and said in Proverbs 5.11, You mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. There's many times when I read that and I had no idea what it meant. And then I began to consider, what if it means the flesh and body being consumed because now you've been overwhelmed by sexually transmitted diseases and it starts quite literally to kill you. Couple all of this with 
the emotional toll of infidelity. Couple this with anxiety over constant deception and guilt and rationalization and the excuse for sin. But in the end, infidelity promotes suspicion and fear and lack of trust and lack of respect and lack of affection. And once the trust is gone, it's almost impossible to retrieve it. Lust damages your testimony in the church and outside of the church. But in the end, in the end, in the end, lust displeases the heart of God. And this is usually the last place where most people go. On my radio program, I was talking about same-sex marriage. And I was talking about some of the challenges that we face as a culture and a society. And I began to list all of the reasons why it was a bad idea. And in the end, I came up with, it offends God. When David finally admitted And confessed his sin concerning Bathsheba. He said against you and you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight in Psalm 51.4. And it wasn't the king's feeble attempt to diminish the hardship and harm that he had caused. Because a man was dead and a child was dead. What he was doing is he's putting it in proportion. And the proportion of course is this. Lust. Hurts the heart of God. William Barclay wrote, quote, Sin becomes a crime, not against the law, but against love. Again, Skip Heitzig writes, It means breaking not so much God's law as much as breaking God's heart. And so purity begins. Not just with loyalty to your spouse, but with loyalty to God. No wonder Jesus says you have to burn the bridges of temptation. You have to set them on fire and walk away. But not only do you have to burn the bridges of temptation, you have to build bridges of accountability. You have to figure out a way. Not in some superficial way. But you have to build a way to have men and women in your life who will hold you accountable. You see, this isn't just about you showing up for church. I love it when you show up for church. But there's this reality of what it means to form friendships and relationships within the body of Christ. Because guess what? Your life matters and your marriage matters and your relationships matter. And anyone can pretend to be accountable. Anyone can show up at a men's meeting or a women's meeting and someone asks them the question, how are things going? And they can go, fine, 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 when in fact it is not fine. You have to burn the bridges of temptation and you have to build the bridges of accountability, but you also have to strengthen the bridges of affection with your mate. It isn't good enough to burn the bridge of temptation, build bridges of accountability. But now what you've got to do is you, begin to, you have to begin to focus on your husband. You have to begin to focus on your wife. You have to love them and live with them as if they're the one who matters most. I heard a strange story. I'm pretty certain it's apocryphal. It was 
the story of George H.W. Bush, the first Bush. And he was campaigning for president and he'd already been elected and he was seeking a, a second term and he was going through his native state of Texas where everybody knew him and loved him and he's in his presidential motorcade and there's the black SUVs and the limo. Barbara, his wife, is with him and all of a sudden they discover that the limo's about to run out of gas and so they pull over into one of those Texas gas stations and a man comes running out because he wants to be able to say, I filled up the president limo and then all of a sudden the window came down and you could see clearly that Barbara knew who this guy was. She looked at him and she smiled and she called him by name and she got out of the car and she hugged him real good. And then she went back to the car and the president said, Barbara, who is that? Sister George, that was my high school sweetheart. And George his chest kind of went out and a big smile came on his face. And he's thinking, I'm the leader of the free world. I am the most powerful man in the world. And he looks at his wife and he goes, aren't you glad that you married me, the president of the United States, instead of that guy? And she goes, oh, George, don't be silly. If I had married him, he'd be president of the United States. <laughs> That's the challenge, isn't it? It isn't to be upset over the person that we married, but to help that person become the person that they were always meant to be. Do you want a pure heart? Then you have to look in the right direction. You have to look away from the sin. And you have to look fully into the face of God and into the face of your spouse. Burn, burn the bridges of temptation. Make a radical break with the sin. Do it now. Don't put it off. Some of you might need to make a phone call right after church. You need to be able to say, it's done. We're through. It's over. I'm walking away from this sinful situation. You need to build bridges of accountability. You need to form friendships and relationships within the body of Christ. I'm not saying tell everyone everything, but what I am saying is surround yourself in a culture where you can get the attention that you need. There was an early church manual. It was called the Didache. And in the very first century of the very first followers of Jesus, they wrote this note. They said, quote, my child, be not lustful, for the path of lust leads to sexual promiscuity. Neither be obscene in speech, nor have roving or wandering eyes, for from all of these are born adulteries. We need purity in our heart. Purity in the heart will lead to purity in the marriage. Purity in the church. Purity in the world. You don't get to be in charge. 
over other people's decisions. But you do get to be in charge of the decision that you make. And it's okay for you to say, that part of my life has to disappear and I need a new life and a new heart. And now we begin to understand a little bit better, but Jesus isn't finished. But we are for right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that marriages are at risk. We know that there is so much pain and there's so much heartache. When unfaithfulness and infidelity invade a home and invade a church, Lord, we want so much to be different. And Lord, we know that we can never be different if we adopt and we embrace what the world is saying instead of what you're saying. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who is reluctant to make Jesus the Lord. I pray for that person who is reluctant to submit to the authority of Jesus and the word of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. Lord, I pray even now that they would come to grips and they would say, you know what? It doesn't make sense for me to continue along this road. Quite literally, Lord, I know some people are choosing between continuing in their sin and going to hell. Lord, I pray that they would make a good choice, a healthy choice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.